Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter Podcast, I'll be interviewing Tim McConaughey. Based in Raleigh, North Carolina, Tim is a cloud solutions architect with Aviatrix, a cloud networking software company. You can follow him on Twitter at Juan Golbez and check out his website at carpe-dmvpn.com. Tim's the author of the LeanPub book, The Hybrid Cloud Handbook for AWS, AWS Cloud Networking for Traditional Network Engineers. In the book, Tim introduces network engineers to the concepts required to adapt and thrive in a cloud technology shift where they need to continue to operate the networks they know and learn new ones at the same time. In this interview, we're going to talk about Tim's background and career, professional interests, his book, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience as an author and writer. So thank you very much, Tim, for being on the LeanPub Front Matter podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk just a little bit about where you grew up and how you found your way into the career you did. Yeah, that's that's a fair question. Um, so I, well, I mean, I grew up in uh, Norfolk, uh, uh, Tidewater area of Virginia. Actually, I spent most of my most of my life there. Um, you know, in Virginia Beach, Chesapeake, that that, that area. Um, you know, graduated high school in, uh, I'll date myself here. I graduated high school in, uh, 97. Um, and yeah, I'm sure if you're doing the math on that one, <laughs> anyway, um, you know, and, and then I, uh, I started my career currently kind of late, actually. Uh, I, I, I kind of bounced around between jobs, always kind of in the IT, uh, field, uh, you know, as a system administrator for a while, uh, then it was kind of an ad set manager. Uh, for a city and, um, you know, eventually it landed on, uh, in network engineering and, uh, actually my first real network engineering job was on the, uh, NMCI, which is the Navy Marine Corps internet. So I worked on, uh, Norfolk Naval base actually for a few years in their network operation centers. That's where I got my, got my start with the, uh, network engineering thing. And so that was when I was almost, so I was 29 at the time. So I was. You know, it's been not quite, you know, not quite 15 years yet. In a year or two, it'll be a 15, a 15 years. Um, but yeah, that's that's where I got started. Uh, it's interesting. Um, I've, I've interviewed a few sort of people who got into, who made their way into network engineering uh, on the podcast in the past. And I think it's, it's very typical for people to have sort of started somewhere, somewhere in IT. And then they, you know, they, they you know, but it, but not, not in network engineering to begin with. And they just discover they have an aptitude for the very technical, I mean, that word can be used in so many different ways, but the sort of like the behind the scenes stuff, um, mm. uh, that's, that's the sort of where the real, the real magic happens. Um, what did you study in college? I'm looking at your, um, uh, LinkedIn profile here, but I've, I've, i often like to ask people if they studied something that was like, you know, the same as what they went into or different. Yeah, that's a fair question. Um, actually this is, Interesting. So I dropped out of college. I went for I went to college, uh, community college. Started at community college, which I would recommend to everybody personally, uh, to start at like some kind of a lower two year college, and then maybe if you're you know graduate, then go to a, a four year just for price, if nothing else. Um, but yeah, anyway. So I spent two years. I didn't actually get a degree there, um, and that the reason I didn't is because well, there's a couple reasons. The main one is that I didn't have. Um, they didn't have, should I say, at the college I was going to, they didn't really have a great IT program at the time, actually. It was pretty much computer science or nothing. Uh, and and computer science, of course, is is programming, um, like deep, deep programming, uh, to, to put that in perspective. 
you know, one of the courses I had, but never ended up taking was, uh, actually one of the old like punch card programming things. I'm, I'm now it was, it was, it was, it was old when I went. So uh, you know, I'm not that quite that old. Uh, but it was, uh, that was one of the courses like, and then of course it was super, uh, lots and lots of calculus and, and stuff. And I just realized that man, math is okay, but I just don't like calculus. I didn't want to be a programmer. So I actually found that out. I didn't want to be a programmer. So long story short, I dropped out of college before I actually got even a two year degree. Now, having said that, uh, I've actually been going for the last year and a half to uh, Western Governors University. Here I am, you know, 43. <laughs> decided that hey now is a great time to get my bachelor's so uh yeah uh i, I they have a, a multi-cloud uh computing degree so it fits really well with what i do now and uh i'm hoping to finish it this term actually so i should be i'm hoping to be done by june with it and have my have my bachelor's you know only 30 years and 20 years something too late <laughs> that's yeah. really fantastic i um are some of your were some of your professors intimidated when they learned about your what you know? There, there, there. First of all, Western Governors employees really, their 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 instructors are good. They're not they're not bad instructors at all. Um, having said that, absolutely, I had a a, a discussion with one of my professors. Um, I'm trying to remember for which course it was. It was one of the cloud computing like entry entry level cloud computing courses that I was taking. Uh, and uh, he found out that I was a plural site author, and um, that I'd done plural site courses, and he was like really interested in that. And so he actually spent a, spent a good amount of time talking about like, you know, how to get into it, how how he did it, how I did it, and stuff like that. And uh, you know, so that was that was good. That that was that was good. But for the most part, Western Governors is interesting because it's all online, so they don't end up talking to the the, the uh, uh, professors very much unless you kind of need their time you kind of book time with them and then they'll they'll call you and you know you have a good discussion but i've been lucky in that the the bachelors i'm going after is is pretty well aligned to what i know and what i do so i've been just kind of blazing through it so far oh that's great to hear yeah sorry i didn't mean to sort of impugn anyone i was just thinking <laughs> no was no thinking, no no i was thinking i actually had a very specific example in my head of a friend of mine who got a phd in philosophy and in, in morals and ethics and stuff like that and did a couple of postdocs and then ended up kind of he ended up then doing a master's in uh administration because he wanted to mm -hmm. get a public sector job and so he had a class on ethics being taught by a guy with an mba and when the guy learned who he was he was just like whoa <laughs> you know i know what i'm talking about at my level but you know and sometimes professors right. can be like and it's it's i think i mean good professors love it when that happens um uh and and it's a great asset but that can be a very interesting experience sort of you know being what they i guess they used to call a mature student um, and going back to university, but but on that note, actually, there's something I wanted to ask you about, which um has come up on the podcast before. But so you you're you've got the CCIE certification, yeah. um, uh, that is an incredible. Like, and I was wondering if you could, wondering if you could just talk a little bit about what that is. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah, because I I I just for some reason I I mean I interviewed um Nick Russo on the podcast years ago, who published like a million word book on <laughs> Meanpub about this, and that was when I first learned how incredibly difficult that certification is to get and the incredible amount of work that goes into it. So yeah, if you could just please explain to us what, what that Absolutely. is. Absolutely. Although if you talk to Nick, you probably have way better a uh, uh, story from him, but Nick is extremely prolific, right? And and I know which book you're talking about, by the way, and it is, I, st I, st I think even years later, m most people refer to it probably as the best technical resource for that particular 
because they have different tracks, right? The CCI, um, the Cisco Certified uh, Internetwork Expert exam has multiple tracks, one for like routing and switching. Well, it's enterprise infrastructure now, but anyway. So one for like routing and switching, uh, enterprise infrastructure, one for service provider, security. You know, there's like, there's multiple tracks. And so each one of those tracks is kind of a pinnacle certification. So there's so much data, uh, you know, like for example, the amount of, of work that he put into that book, um, there's that much that's on the exam. And it's true for every track of that, uh, of the exam. So he did a uh, service provider route switch and, and ended up doing one called the design expert. So he's actually come much further than I have. I only have one uh, CCIE and it's for, it's for route switch. And then they ended up changing the test and they kind of upgraded everyone to what's called enterprise infrastructure now. Um, but, but anyway, so, so, so to answer your actual question, <laughs> um, the CCIE, I would say it's probably the hardest thing I've learned ever. And it's just because of the extreme length and breadth of the, uh, technical data you have to memorize and, and understand and know, but also because, you know, if that was it, I think anyone could probably still do it. Uh, it's a group. It, it, it comes out as a grueling kind of eight hour lab exam at the end of, at the end of the, the thing to, to pass it, you have to pass an exam where you basically sit, you know, at a, a workstation for eight hours. And, uh, honestly, eight hours, a lot of times it's not even enough time, but you're, you're hard set to do everything in the exam within eight hours. And that's really what trips a lot of people up because think about taking you know, something that has enough material that, you know, you build a, uh, that book that, you know, Nick wrote, wrote, for example, you know, that much material. And then, you know, you have to pass an exam within any eight hours seems like a long time until you try to do it. <laughs> it's, it's a hard one to explain to people, but from a preparation perspective, um, I would say that I spent 11, no, I spent nine months. I spent nine months. That's not typical. I, I was in a hurry and I actually worked at Cisco. So I had pretty decent support network at Cisco to do it. Um, but, but I was working, I would work, I would wait, I'm sorry. I would go to sleep. I would put my kids to bed at eight. They were younger at that time. I put my kids to bed at like, you know, eight 30 or something. And then I would go straight to bed and I would wake up at three in the morning and I would go to the office and I would study from three in the morning until well, this is work weekday, uh, work days, three in the morning until around eight, when everybody else showed up and, and work started, I would do my work. I would go home, you know, have dinner, rinse and repeat on the weekends. I would actually go into the office and I would spend two, eight hour days. I'd be there Saturday and Sunday, eight hours in the morning or sorry, eight hours on Saturday, eight hours on Sunday. And so I was putting in probably 30, that's almost as many work hours, right? So 36 hours, something a week. And that's the kind of commitment that, you know, that, that exam was taking to, 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 to be able to do it all. Uh, you know, so some people study for it for years. And, uh, what I would say to that is a lot of times when you study something for years, yes, you will know it, but also it's like juggling, right? Like, uh, it's like one of these exams is like juggling. So you're, you're juggling all of this data and you know, your brain <laughs> over time, starts to lose some of it. So it's a little bit like a sprint, uh, as well. You're trying to get it all in your head and then get through the exam and, and finish it and get the certification before you start dropping, you know, and before, honestly, before life gets in the way. Cause if you think about putting that kind of time, you know, life very easily could get in the way and derail that whole thing, you know, God forbid anything could happen. And, and you, cause if you, if you drop that, once you're doing the juggling, if you drop it for, you know, even a week or two, 
you're you're setting yourself out back quite a bit. So it's a it's a mountain. I like to say it's a it's it's a, it's like a mountain, right? And I try to tell people when they're looking like, hey, I should just go get my CCIE. I'm like, you know, understand why you're doing it, and understand kind of kind of try to wrap your head around really what you're asking yourself and your family to commit to. Get somebody on board with it. Get your you know, your significant other, if you have one kid, you know, just understand what you're going to, what it's going to take to get there. Cause you don't want to get up half, halfway up the mountain, you know, setting out without your tent, without your, <laughs> your materials, get halfway up the mountain and then have to come back down and have nothing to show for it. Right. So it's a real, it's a real commitment. Thanks very much for that really great explanation. Um, it uh, reminded me of conversations I had with a friend of mine who's a neurosurgeon uh, years ago when he was, when he was training and when he talks about sort of keeping up with it as well. Um, mm. I'm really curious. One of the one of the interesting things about I love what I love about talking to network engineers is that like you know people drive by the you know the the big buildings with like Cisco on it or or whatever, and they hear a cloud and network engineer and stuff. And but actually, like what what do you do? Um, <laughs> it remain, remain, <laughs> remains a question there. So for example, you mentioned during the during the uh, qualification exam, you're sitting there for eight hours at a workstation, and mm. you know I, I you know can you explain what the workstation is and like maybe give an example of one or two of the tasks you would be you would be given? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So so now, do you mean this in in context of the exam itself, or are you just being are you trying to be more broad and asking more broadly, like about more, network engineering? More broad, more broadly. Okay, does that network fair. engineer do when they're that's sitting down to work? That's fair. That's fair. So it's one of those things, and uh, I like to talk. Uh, when I talk to other people about it, I'm like, you know, when you turn on the water, what do you expect to happen? Well, I expect my water to come out, right? Uh, you know, if I turn on the light, I expect the light to come on. You know, if I open a web browser, I expect to be able to connect to the internet, right? It's one of those, it's like infrastructure, right? It's uh, it's like a for granted type of, of thing where it's so ubiquitous that it's hard to wrap your mind around the amount of expertise and technology that really goes into into it, right? So... So like I, I, for example, I know for a fact that the, you know, me turning the water faucet on actually involves an, an immense amount of stuff to happen in the background. Um, you know, but I tell you, every, you know, unless they, unless they tell me the water's broke, every time I turn the faucet on, I still look like, come on. Right. So, so take engineering like that, right. Network engineering, I think is a, is an infrastructure level of, uh, technology, right? Like. You know, app developers, they go build applications so that when you open the website, you have something to, to do to, you know, order stuff and all of this. But in order to even get to the point where you can order stuff, you, your internet has to be working, which is, you know, there's a huge amount that goes into that. Um, so think about, you know, and I, I, I don't know how, you know, how old you or the average you know listener would be. But, you know, I can remember a time before the internet even existed where we were happy just to have two computers that could you know, communicate at all. Right. And, and that's the problem with ubiquity is that, you know, over time it becomes ubiquitous. Um, so you don't have to think about it anymore. So just the, the act of, of having two systems be able to communicate in a meaningful way. And th I think about this way. Okay. So like at home, you have probably have like a, a home router and maybe you have multiple PCs or computers, or laptops, uh, you know, connected. If you have like a Amazon stuff, you know, whatever, connect to the Wi-Fi. Um, try to think that if those things had no way to talk to each other wirelessly or otherwise, like how would you actually, like how would that impact you? Let's let's cut the internet out of it, actually. Let's take the internet and set it to the side for now. Let's just say that, you know, you're, uh, 
your child creates, uh, I don't know, a really cool picture and they want to share it with you. Um, you know, how would they even send it to the printer unless they're actually direct connected to the printer? How would they get it on your computer so you could take a look at it, right? And this is, they would have to, you know, you'd have to get a, a USB drive, you have to go plug the USB drive in, you know, copy it to the USB drive, take the USB drive, go plug it into your computer, you know, and then you can maybe from your computer, you could print it or at least you could put it on the screen and look at it, right? And again, using the word ubiquitous here, like this, it's something you don't even think about today. Like you don't even consider that. So when we talk about network engineering, what we're really talking about is um, the infrastructure, taking care of designing, operating, and just making sure it works, the infrastructure to allow, you know, two, two things to communicate in a way that makes it like useful, right? Like that, I don't, I don't know, I'm trying to be, Trying, I'm trying to hit the level without getting like super in the weeds about it, but yeah, but I, I, I particularly love the um the the when people talk about it and they say it's infrastructure, you know, like and then so when you compare it to 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 plumbing, for example, like um uh you know I was thinking about about it recently. Um, so I uh, I used to sort of like you know be in mergers and acquisitions, particularly in utilities space, and so I got to learn about all kinds of infrastructure, including electricity and stuff like that. And I was thinking about that experience recently when there was I don't know if you came across this, but there was a bit of a kind of culture war over natural gas stoves recently. Um, and, and I was, let me, let me think about it. I gotta, I gotta get to you real quick before I forget. Cause I'll forget it. Okay. Um, we actually did swap. We did. I, I actually have a natural gas stove or had a natural gas stove and I read all the data and I probably would have been like, yeah, whatever. Uh, I'm going to stick with my gas stove, but, and this, you know, Maybe that's not, maybe it is, but my, my, uh, my eldest daughter actually did develop asthma like within the last couple of years. And I did all the research and I looked it up and I was like, holy crap, like there's, this is, there's like, there's legitimate like, uh, studies, like there's legitimate data here. So anyway, sorry not to cut you off, but, uh, oh, no, we actually, thanks very much. I, I'm familiar, I'm, fa I'm familiar at least with what you're talking about. And I actually swapped to an induction stove. And I actually like my induction so but anyway sorry yeah no no thanks very much for saying that it's actually it's, it, it's actually interesting like i mean the, the sort of like when we think about the i guess the reason i was bringing it up was like you know we sort of often we we think about like i just turn on the tap and i get my water and that's what plumbing is right and so mm -hmm. the similar thing with the gas stove is like i i turn i turn the dial and i've got a i've got a flame what what yep. more is there to it and but when you know that underground throughout your entire neighborhood is this vast network of pipes with flammable gas in it. Yeah. And the work it takes to build that and the money that it takes to build that in the first place, the fact that it has a lifetime that's going to yeah. come to an end, the fact that it's leaking everywhere. And, I, and, you know, and, and, you know, like, and that's just a part of a part of gas networks, you know? Um, yeah. Uh, and when you think about building all of that, when you've already got, an electricity network <laughs> that can that, right. do the, that you know to, to to maybe use a kind of scientific term do the work that you need to keep things up you know the idea of maintaining this entirely separate network um uh you know for one for basically one thing i mean obviously people use it for heating and there's industrial yeah. uses and stuff like that that's different but like when you think of when you, when you actually know that like you know underneath your whole neighborhood is this network of, of tubes with gas in it <laughs> Um, you know, that, yeah. that debate takes on a kind of different tenor. Um, uh, and, um, but anyway, it's, it, but it is interesting. It's like that, that idea that like, you know, that we all have, like I would, I would have, even though I've interviewed network engineers and sort of work in tech and stuff like that, I still can't help but relate to it as like a switch. And that's all there is to it is, 
is it's going to, it's going to be provided to me and it's going to be there. And when, when you think about like just the incredible complexity of what it takes to communicate wirelessly in the first place to do so seamlessly off multiple devices and like across, across time zones and the globe. And just, you know, it is, so it is fascinating and, and difficult, the work that's done, which leads me to my next uh, question that I wanted to ask, because one thing, one thing I did researching for this interview was find a couple of uh, videos that you had on where you were sort of talking with people on YouTube and stuff. Cause there's a bit, there's a lot of community around, around network engineering and service and a lot of podcasts and, and stuff, but there was this one, um, there were these two, probably, I think they were clips from a, a longer kind of recording, but one of, in one of them, you talked with your, uh, you know, co-hosts about imposter syndrome. Um, and in another one you talked about, and I, I really like this about, uh, how network engineers are kind of high strung. Um, <laughs> and I was, I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that issue generally. I mean, why, why would a network, we sort of answered it in our last couple of minutes of conversation, but why are network engineers typically high strung? And why do they often feel like they're kind of behind people's expectations of them? That's, yeah, that's a really good question, actually. Um, okay, so the imposter syndrome one I can definitely remember. Uh, I know exactly which one we're talking about. That was on, I think, Network Collective on a, on a YouTube channel. And uh, anyway, sorry. Um, anyway, so to answer the first question about imposter syndrome, and it's funny that you mentioned this because I was literally just talking on Twitter uh, in DMs with a friend of mine who is also a network engineer, a network architect, and was asking me uh, some AWS questions. And we were talking about it and uh you know he asked the question and i gave an answer i said actually let me go to look this up first and i went and look and he's like oh no no you're right I, I checked that you're already right i'm like okay thank god because i hate the idea of of giving bad advice or, or just being wrong generally or especially when i'm helping someone else that's i can be wrong to myself all day but when i'm helping someone else it's it's really really damning for me at least in my in my own head to 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 be that way and um, and I remember mentioning to him also, I was like, I, when you get to our level, like the architect level, and you you know multiple domains and you know all this stuff, uh, and people are coming to you for help, you know, it's, you know, you don't feel any different, right? So so you almost feel like you know the yogi on the mountain type of situation, except you you feel like a fraud, right? Like you're, you're like, why are these people coming to me and asking me? I don't know anything more than I knew, you know, ten years ago or something, right? And and uh, I think. I think you, I think you know it, but like nobody, the thing is that nobody keeps all of that alive in their head all the time, right? You, you, you can go find it, you can remember it, you can research it and, you know, no matter, once you've learned something, you don't really forget it. You just, you know, might forget some of the details or whatever. So a lot of times people come to you for help and, uh, or, you know, you're talking to a customer or something and you're, you're offering advice and you're feeling like thinking in the back of your head, like, I hope I remember this right because I like you just feel you know it's it's hard to explain if you if you don't struggle with that kind of I guess I don't imposter syndrome it's it's hard to explain what that is um, but it's it's definitely a feeling like you know I should be this expert and like in my head right now at this moment I don't feel like an expert and the truth is you are and you just you don't keep it all you know immediately hot at the top of your head all the time right um, so that's the first thing. And then from a from high, and I can only speak for myself on that. By the way, that's my interpretation. Uh, but I I do find that you know, and you mentioned the networking community. There's we do have a, a big old community, and you know, topics like this come up, and other people have have said something similar. Like the person I was talking to today, he said something similar. He was like, "Wow, we're like the same person," because like, it it comes up a lot actually, and it's just because there's so much to know. Um, 
and then from the high strung perspective, I definitely think so. Um, because a lot of times, and this is going back a little bit to the infrastructure piece of it. So businesses are the businesses are like you and me and like, you know, the average person, right? Like you walk up to the faucet, you turn the water on, you expect there to be water. Well, businesses, you know, expect to be able to conduct business without having to think about what goes into it. Ultimately, it's like, I pay you to figure to, to, to think about what goes into it. I just know that I want my website to be up so people can come buy stuff from me. Right. Um, you know, and there's, so there's a lot of, uh, and that's, that's just using an e-commerce example. Think about like hospitals, think about, you know, the military sites and, and sites where constant connectivity, you know, could be life or death or, you know, national security or whatever. And, and at the infrastructure layer, there's a lot of criticality, you know, think about SCADA systems and stuff like that. You know, if your water stops working, you know, that could be a potentially really bad thing. Uh, you know, anyway. So, so at the infrastructure level, there's definitely a lot of, a uh, uh, lot of uh, criticality to it. And therefore, you know, and the businesses see that too. Right. So, so I can't tell you how many calls I've been on where, you know, something is broken and like the, the entire business can't do business. Like they're just, you know, we're losing a million dollars a minute type of, of, of downtime problem here that's happening. Um, and so it's high stress. It's a high, it's a high stress environment. It, it definitely can be. Even at the the network operator level, where you're just managing problems, uh, you know, somebody calls in and says their their website isn't working or whatever. That's you know all, all the way up. It's 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 stressful. And the other thing is that you're never done. And this is more of a tech. This isn't necessarily a network engineering thing. It's a te- it's really a technology thing, a tech industry thing. Is that you're never done, right? Tech is constantly changing. I mean, even more than probably lots of other uh, fields. You know, tech especially. Uh, you know, the hallmark of tech is that it's always disrupting, changing, new things are coming out, old things are being removed. You know, look at the cloud within, the cloud's actually been out for quite a long time, but, you know, it's taken this long for to get real huge adoption. Um, but a lot of us network engineers haven't really had a chance to play with the cloud because the businesses haven't been migrating to the cloud. So, so again, this is, you know, there's a little bit of a cyclical miss uh, to it. And so you're always, I, I, I equate it to being on a treadmill, right? Like you're on the treadmill and as long as you keep running on the treadmill, everything's fine. You're going to, you know, your career keeps going, but if God forbid you ever, uh, step off the treadmill, I don't think you can ever really step off the treadmill for any appreciable amount of time. I think you just gave me the, uh, great, uh, podcast guest gift of an awesome segue, uh, into the next part of the interview where we'll talk oh. about your book, um, the hybrid cloud <laughs> handbook for AWS, AWS cloud networking for traditional network engineers. Um, because that is very much about staying on the treadmill and keeping up with things. Um, yep. and so I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about, uh, what the book is about and, and who it's for. Yeah, absolutely. So th- this is, this, what we've talked about just now is, is what I kept in mind. Because I mean, my, myself, I uh, though I've been an architect for a long time, I've been in network engineering for a very long time. Uh, cloud is newer to me. Certainly, you know, if you look at my pedigree or whatever you to call it, I, you know, only within the last year or two have I moved into the cloud. So uh, that's still fr- somewhat fresh in my mind. You know, the transition that I've taken from network engineering to cloud network engineering, which is a, really is a different ball game, um, different technology, whatever. And I'm also active in multiple network engineering communities and I keep my ear pretty low to the ground to, to, to help people and to, to talk to people and just kind of 
understand what, what the the gestalt uh was it gestalt i, I should have cut up uh, the, yeah. i thought it was too yeah. okay where the gestalt of the uh the network engineering community is um and so it's a common theme i hear is is this kind of and they don't always say treadmill but it's it's the treadmill type of of thing which is like man we can't keep up right it was uh right when right before covid hit there was a big um what's the word i want like almost like a fork in the network community about what the future of network engineering would be right and on one side it was network automation and and truth it's really kind of still ongoing it hasn't been settled but it was really really prevalent uh right before covid hit so i'd say 2019ish right around with the time they were rolling out the devnet cisco devnet uh certification and so the fork in the road for a lot of us was okay so are we going to learn network automation where you know we're going to use python and and go and like scripts and and stuff to to um, solve scale problems of 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 how many network devices are out there that that have to be managed, but you know there's there's the teams are as small as ever, you know hundreds thousands of network devices out there. You can't be logging into every one and pushing code, right? You need to be able to, to manage it. That was the one fork in the road. The other fork in the road was cloud, cloud, cloud networking, cl uh, just cloud in general. Um, and network engineers would often find themselves like smack right in the middle of that of that road like hey i learned everything i needed to learn about traditional networking i know bgp yeah ospf uh eigrp like all the all the traditional kind of network on-prem stuff and now you know what's what does my career look like from here what, what do i what's the next big thing i really need to uh absorb to be relevant and hireable and you know move my career forward and that was the big fork in the road right so um, at the time, I was working in Cisco's uh, customer proof of concept labs, and my job was pretty much to build uh, proof of concept labs for customers, like to see Cisco solutions in uh, kind of run through a test plan and like show them how it works. Basically, it was with Cisco's sales organization to to show them a solution would work in the lab under their specifications. So for me at the time, I actually took the I took the other path. I went for network automation because that was extremely closely tied to the type of work that I was doing. I was building, you know, week in and week out. I was I was building labs uh, to to deliver to customers. So this idea of network automation was like really interesting to me. It would uh, help me a lot. So anyway, long story short, uh, I ended up transitioning i ended up taking uh, a job in cisco as for a little while and then uh, moving on to aviatrix because i realized that as i learned more about cloud i was like okay this is actually where this is actually really important like this is this is where business is going this is where the industry is going not that the other one is not important they're both important but you have to you can't like you know you have to make a choice and then maybe you can come back and do the other one right but you have to make a choice um, so, so then I decided I wanted to go with cloud networking. So, um, anyway, so long story short, yeah, that's the point I wanted to make is that, uh, that was kind of the, the, the big thing that was happening. And now, you know, it's still, it's still ongoing, but that's the kind of stuff that the tech industry does, like where we have to often make choices about what we're going to learn, where do we spend our time? And so getting it back to the book, which I, I, was, I was trying to pull it back to the book, um, I wanted to help network engineers 
get a, a head start, get a get a head start, but not just a head start because um, anyone can write kind of a, a 101 book about anything. What I wanted to do specifically was say, okay, I know you're a network engineer if you're reading this book, at least probably that's who it was written for and that's where, who will get the most value out of it. Therefore, I can make a reasonable expectation of the terminology, you know, the kind of diagrams you're used to looking at. What, I, what you already know, I can help you. And then I can help you bridge to cloud, but I don't want to make you an expert because there's already AWS, uh, uh, OCI, uh, GCB. They, they all have their own entirely mature training tracks to, to go super deep on all their own, their own stuff. What I want to do is actually do the... Uh, not the opposite, but like basically give you enough to be, uh, to get started and not only just to get started, but be useful because it, you know, not just, okay, now I know how to talk about cloud, but also know how to start working with networks in the cloud. Um, and so I specifically set out when I started writing the book, I started by saying to myself, I don't want this book to be more than like 150 pages. Like if it's longer than 150 pages, I've already failed because I've given any network engineer that picks up this book is going to be like, oh my God, this is like, I don't have time for this. <laughs> this is too much to read. Um, so that was kind of the hard limit I set for myself. I actually started at 100 pages. Then as I got closer to the end, I was like, okay, to be useful, I actually need to go over 100. Um, but the goal was always to make it concise, to make it straight to the point, concise, uh, because the CSPs, the cloud service providers, already have their own mature training programs. The problem is that if you want to do those training programs, you're often in, in for a penny and for a pound for, you know, maybe hundreds of hours of training to get there. And people don't have it. They're too busy fighting fires. They're too busy, you know, learning what they are learning what they already know or not uh, using what they already know. They're too busy, you know, solving the problems of today to even have time to start working on the problems of tomorrow. So that was like a really, really important part of to me uh, of of not just why I wrote the book, but how I set about to write the book was to be something that a network engineer could pick up in like an afternoon, you know, leaf through, read through, you know, I even have a, a, a reference thing at the end that goes through like, here's the term and here's like the five seconds of, of what this means from networking perspective. And here's the chapter to find more so that, you know, if, if they're on a phone call, uh, you know, they could like literally just like flip to the back of the book and actually understand how to speak the language with the cloud teams and stuff with, you know, to get stuff done. That's, that was my goal. So I, you know, I, I've been getting good feedback. I think I've mostly hit that goal. I got some really good feedback. Um, so yeah, but anyway, that, that's, that, that was my goal. That was what I was, that was what I was going for. That's really great. Um, a book that respects your time uh, is a rare thing. Um, <laughs> and uh, when someone, you know, has been through as much training and sort of certification and stuff as you have and sort of knows like there's that level of thing and then there's the keeping up with things and then there's the fighting the fires and all that kind of stuff and then keeping your family life going and things like that or maybe even doing an extra degree <laughs> on the side of, of all your work and writing and stuff like that, that, that a book like that um, can be really, really valuable to people. And they can often, you can see right away with this book, for example, that it's that it's sort of clearly structured um, uh, for that kind of purpose, which is just great. Um, in the last part of the interview, when the guest is an, an author, I always like to talk to them a little bit in the weeds about their, their process. Um, Absolutely. So I was wondering if you could talk first about how do you carve out time for writing in your life? Oh boy. Yeah. You just, uh, didn't pull punches on that one, huh? <laughs> that's, that's a tough one. That is a tough question. Uh, and, and, and obviously I did it right because I, I read the book. Um, but I would be lying if I said that 
you know, I only did it on weekends when everybody was asleep or something like that. No, I, this definitely cut into not, not exclusively of course, but this definitely cut into time that I would have, you know, spent with my family. Otherwise, um, I would say, you know, I would finish my work day and, you know, I would spend some time with them after school and whatnot. My, I have two young daughter, two younger daughters, uh, five, they're five years apart. So they're, they're in different schools. One's in elementary and one's in middle school. But anyway, uh, you know, spend some time there, uh, maybe play a video game or two with them or something, just catch up really. And, uh, you know, do dinner. And then right after dinner, I'd be down here, you know, writing from like seven to 10 or something like that. Not 10, probably about nine. And then I'd get them to bed. So a couple hours a day. And then when I got up in the morning, after I took my oldest to school, you know, before work started, I would have maybe an hour, hour and a half, you know, to, to write. Um, so definitely it was kind of bookended bookends of my day doing the writing uh, process and it, it helped a little bit because that's that, that uh, staggering would allow me to put time put space between myself and my words and I think anyone who's written anything can understand the value uh, of that especially if they don't have like their own editor that's gonna that's gonna do the due diligence for them when you put space between in time between you and your words, you can come back and you can read them kind of as they are in the paper instead of how you intended, if that makes sense. Like, cause you know, I, I don't know if anybody's, I'm sure, sure you, you've talked to many authors, so I'm sure you've heard this before, but when you write something and then you read it, oftentimes your, your eyes and your brain kind of see what you intended, like, you know, and you read right into what you wrote, what your intention was. Uh, and when you come back to something after putting some time between you, um, you often read it and you're like, realize that, okay, actually this could be taken another way, or I wasn't clear here or whatever, something that are true. An editor, if you work with like a traditional publisher and, and that, you know, had gone through that whole thing, an editor would probably have done for you. Um, but there's, you know, there's all sorts of baggage <laughs> associated with that, with that whole process as you, as you know, right. Um, yeah, no, sorry. Sure. No, that's no, that's that's a great uh, a great story. Um, I think uh, one thing for anyone listening who wasn't didn't didn't know why there's dedication pages at the beginning of books, and people thank their their partners and their children. <laughs> Explain why uh, this this if it weren't for if it weren't for you giving me the time and space and support uh, to do this, you know, for example, handing off childcare and things like that. Yeah. I know this book would not have been possible. Um, I forget who it was, but I've once heard a story about an an author who had a study in their house and the, their partner called it the room. Um, and whenever, whenever the author started the new book project, it was like, Oh, I hate that room. You just go in there and you're gone. Um, yeah. you know, for, and I know it's going to be for months on end and hours a, a day and things like that. And it can be really difficult, but of course there's the great reward at the end of, of having the book, uh, be out there. And as you say, getting feedback and things like that. Um, one thing, one thing I noticed was that your book is, uh, was published on LeanPub using our upload writing mode. Um, mm -hmm. which means you've used your own tools rather than LeanPub's tools to to create the the PDF and EPUB, EPUB files. Um, and mm -hmm. so for anyone listening who's sort of curious about the ins and outs of that, but what what app or tools did you use to actually write and produce your EPUB or, and, and uh, PDF files? Yeah, that, that's a good question. So I, I used, um, I, I mean, I used Microsoft Word. Um, that was the first thing I used. I uh, I actually did, I did use the, um, so Le LeanPub has a, an editor that you guys have been working on that's actually quite good. 
Um, it's uh, I forget, you call it Mark Markua. It's like a mark. It's like it's like it's a markdown basically. It's like it's yeah, like markdown. Markdown for books is our is our specification. Yeah, 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 yeah. So so I actually did uh, quite a bit of work there as well, and you know it, that that worked really well. Um, I ended up at the end uh, for formatting reasons. I ended up kind of converting it. Uh, taking the rest and and doing it back in in Word and then uh, converting it, I um, but LeanPub also has a really good, um, uh, what's the thing I'm looking for? It has a really good uh, book formatting tool as well uh, that will format the book such uh, for print so that you know you get the aligning the the you know you get the gutter and it does the gutter and, and all of that where it aligns it such that okay this is your left page this is your right page and you don't have to do any of that. At work yourself which is also really good so actually that was that was also a great that's how i ended up doing my print copy actually when you know that uh when i when i ended up do, doing a print copy that was the, the that was the pdf i used actually that's really interesting that's actually really a, a kind of classic lean pub author story is and that's actually one of the that's a sort of of one of our recommended writing processes is just get going write your book and at the end if you want, and probably when we do recommend using one of the LeanPub's writing modes, I mean, that's obvious for, for, there's all kinds of reasons why I'm um, including the print ready PDF output option that you have if you use one of yep. our, our writing modes. Um, but, uh, but we do say, and at, but at the end though, when you're done writing, now it may be, or may not be formatting time. If it is formatting time, go off, either do it yourself in Word or whatever tool you like, hand it off through InDesign to like a sort of, you know, professional book yeah. design or something like that. And then come back and switch your writing mode on LeanPub to our upload writing mode and upload the files. So that way you, you yep. keep all the readers that you uh, um, acquired <laughs> uh, throughout the writing in progress publishing process if you, if you did that. And then you could convert to this awesome formatted thing at the end. Um, and uh, but, but leaving the formatting to the end um, yep. is, is the sort of typical kind of lean publishing philosophy kind of idea. Um, and I, I say that as one someone who has to fight against the urge to kind of format all the way along um uh my sense true um, it's true <laughs> uh, but yeah and, and i also 100 percent agree with you about um actually setting work aside and coming back to it later is incredibly useful for the reasons you described particularly that that then you put it very well that you kind of like in your mind you conflate your intention with what you actually did this is true not just in writing but in other areas of our lives as well <laughs> um, very true uh uh which is why there's training tapes in sports and things like that but um uh but but anyway yeah thanks very much for sharing that process that's really really interesting um the last question um i always like to ask on the podcast if the guest is a lean pub author is if there was one thing about lean pub that had you just shaking your fists going damn you lean pub the whole time or on occasion or if there was one magical feat that we could fix for you or one magical feature that we could build for you can you think of anything that you would ask us to fix or do uh, let me think about that. I, I would say 99% of everything that I wanted to be able to do, I was, I was able to do, and I was very pleased with the, I mean, and, and this isn't the first book I've written with LeanPub. It's the first one that I went, took all the way to, to actually ended up being print as a, as a physical copy. Um, uh, but I have a couple other, uh, book bundles on LeanPub and, and in those cases, I didn't use LeanPub at all because, because I didn't, I didn't use LeanPub's, um, authoring tools, should I say, at all. This was a couple of, this was years ago. This was maybe two or two or three years ago now. So maybe maybe some of the stuff wasn't even here at that time. Uh I had just written it in Word, I formatted it in PDF and I did upload and I was done. 
Uh, this time, of course, you know, I kind of alternated uh, back and forth. The only the only uh, problem I had was um, I had one problem at the end, and it was just in the book generation. And you know, you uh, I yeah, I had trouble generating the book at the very end. Um, we worked through it, um, and then uh, I ended up, like I said, ended up taking it and formatting it, and uh, and just taking that last little bit. But I was actually. I actually liked the uh, the markdown writing experience. I uh, I remember you kind of had to talk me into it because I didn't even know it existed at the time uh, when I'd first reached out to you guys uh, after I'd gotten the the author membership, which I'm you know very happy with. And I didn't quite understand the the, the writing process because I'd never done it before. You know, using the Lean Pub authoring uh, process, and you guys were really patient with explaining some of the questions I had that. And, and all of that. So I actually really enjoyed the process. It was just at the end, I had a, uh, some book generation problems, which, you know, that's just, the, I, my understanding is the, the tool that you've got is just always like it's constant. You got the constant improvement thing going to, to make it better. So yeah, was that I'm hopeful. Funny, was that the funny Unicode characters in code blocks breaking book generation? Uh, we had, we had a, I don't know those oh, a little while ago. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. I, I'll be honest. I'm not a hundred percent sure. Um, Honestly, I would have been. I would have spent the time to figure it out, but I was under a deadline, dude. like like a kind of a self-imposed deadline. But I had, I had kind of committed that I was like, hey, I was going to print this, so I, I didn't really have a lot of time to troubleshoot it. But I know there. But that's the thing. It's a, it's a markdown writer. It's a you guys have kind of created your own authoring tool, so you know you can't expect that everything would work necessarily one hundred percent every time. So uh, I'll. In, insofar as, I mean, we talk about us being patient with you, insofar as LeanPub works as well as it does, it's because of us being able to talk with with authors um, and having them reach out to us and tell us that the problems that they're having and, you know, the more, the more de one of the things that's sort of so great about LeanPub, although we're open to all books and, you know, and all genres and things like that, but since so many of our, of our authors are actually kind of technical people themselves, they're just excellent at reporting problems. <laughs> you know, it's not like there's a problem, fix it. There's like, I made this change on page 65. Here's a screenshot, you know, and here's, right. here's, here's the source file in my manuscript here. It's in line 53, I think might be the problem. Can you guys get free? You know, and like that's just yep. an amazing, but like the back and forth and particularly, you know, one of the reasons we do this podcast is to actually get to sort of understand authors' processes and things like that. And yes, we are always improving it. Um, and in partly in response to feedback and in response, in response to problems, the Markua specification we haven't isn't fully it's fully written. We do change it from time to time, although we're very careful with those decisions. But um, it's not fully implemented yet, so that's why it's sort of new things are are being added from time to time, and then new new bugs happen and things like that. Yeah, um, agile yeah, development. There's, man. there's a lot of you know, <laughs> duck, duck paddling under the water kind of thing. As as I mean, I guess is kind of the theme of the theme of this episode. So. Um, on that note, Tim, thank you very much for taking some time out of your day to uh, talk to me and to talk to our audience. And thank you very much for being a Lean Pub author. Yeah, I'm very, very pleased. Very happy to be one. Thanks. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a Lean Pub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.